Hey folks, this is the Contextual Insurgent Podcast, and I'm your host, Aaron Smith. I'm an activist, an analyst, a writer, and a sensemaker. I'm a Republican, a former SFGOP Central Committee Delegate, where I was the Deputy Vice Chair of Communications. As California GOP endorsed State Senate candidate, where I managed to win 11% of the vote in San Francisco, which, trust me, is better than average. I've also been involved with the firearms community and Second Amendment rights. I was on the cover of Time Magazine in November of 2018 for the Guns in America issue. But I'm probably best known for my free speech activism and facing off with the hard lefties like Antifa in California and the Pacific Northwest since 2017. The general topic of this podcast series will be politics in the current culture war as seen from my unique, rather hands-on experience and knowledge. But I also intend to include a practical element focused on giving you the conceptual tools to build towards true grassroots, nonviolent political change. You may have noticed lefties usually seem to get what they want regardless of how elections go, and I want to help you change that. This podcast is the nucleus of a larger contextual insurgency project, which also includes a weekly roundup substack newsletter that will go out starting every Monday with links to topical events and a short analysis. I plan to add a YouTube and website in the near future and expect more written content in various outlets. Producing this content is now my full-time job, and if you found this project helpful and my content worthy, I would love your support. I've dusted off my Patreon and I have a cash app, and patronizing those would be greatly appreciated. My cash app is dollar sign ee smith4, that's the number 4, and the Patreon is patreon.com backslash ee smith4. Again, that's the number 4. For the cost of buying me a mocha frappuccino at Starbucks, I can continue my work that ultimately is about helping you. Today is episode 8. We're going to pick up where we left off with the election analysis, and we're also going to talk about optimism, uncertainty, and the art of managing expectations. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. I know that quote sounds a little dire, and you're probably wondering if I'm walking back my prediction from Episode 7, and the answer is no, I'm not. In, you know, in Episode 7, I made the case that the cumulative situation for us was actually extremely positive in the medium and long term, regardless of who winds up in the, you know, residing in the White House on January 20th. I 110% stand by that analysis. It was very important for me to get that piece out to counteract a lot of the depression and negativity I was seeing from people. Um, and upon further reflection and feedback, I decided I wanted to expand more on the bigger picture and delve into the topic of mindset, which is one of, part of the topic for today. See, the thing is, nuance is really hard. Um, it's a very, very common human tendency to treat outcomes as binary and we pick one indicator as your victory condition, and we pin our entire emotional response on that outcome. You know, the fact is, we don't live in a world that simple. There will be no single decisive battle that decides everything. Our current conditions are the product of decisions that were made before we were born. The decisions we make in response will create echoes that our grandchildren will still be dealing with. I think it's really important to be realistic as well as optimistic. And I think I was in my last episode, and I have been in this episode, and will continue to be. Honestly, that is my my default mode that I try to shoot for. I try to temper my, you know, I try to, to put an optimistic view on things, uh, at least find the positive ways through things, um, as well as being realistic. Um, and that's important. That's why I had the Stockdale quote. I see a lot of grifters in the MAGA movement and right-wing general conservative politics, people who want to grift, and part of doing that is saying the most outlandishly positive things that are have no bearing whatsoever on reality. Um, you know, in my Substack, I said that 
I felt that Trump was beating the polls. I didn't know if it would be enough, but I thought he was going to well outperform expectations. Um, and I thought it was going to be a razor thin election either way. You know, I, I said 276, the helmet Northpoth um, prediction. I went with that, and we'll see what happens. You know, what, what happens with these lawsuits where they where they turn out? Um, but that's how I've always called it, and that's how I will continue to call it. And I hope that's, you know, why you continue to listen to this podcast. We seem to be holding on to the Senate. We have picked up at least 10, maybe 15 seats in the U.S. House. Um, we've picked up 100-plus seats in state legislatures. We've flipped like two or three state houses. I think the Ala- one of the Alaska state houses and both houses in New Hampshire. Um, we're on track to control 50% of the seats that will be redistricted for the U.S. House. The Democrats are going to control roughly 10%. You see, if you remember, we just had a census. The census this year um, was a little quick and dirty. Um, we also had a mass migration due to COVID. So a lot of your urban blue states are going to lose a ton of seats. And we are going to control a big chunk of those. 2022 is almost certainly going to be a red wave. Uh, this year was arguably more of a red wave than a blue wave. You know, as long as you ignore what's happening with the presidency. Now, I mean, let's be clear with that. That's still up in the air. There are some very you know, strong arguments, in my opinion, that some serious irregularities. And again, I'm going to I'm going to ping back on what I said in episode seven. We need to start treating elections more like nuclear reactors or commercial airliner parts. You can't just go pick one of those up and assume it's good and you have to prove it's defective. No, you have a very stringent process to ensure the results. And, you know, election fraud is something that has a a storied history in American history, you know, the Battle of Athens, um, the Tammany machine, you know, something else I was reading the other day, uh, France stopped, they banned doing mail-in ballots in 1975 because they had massive, massive fraud. Uh, there's been some really interesting um, lawsuits filed and some affidavits that were filled out in interviews with people claiming some pretty astounding election fraud happening like in Wayne County. That lawsuit was apparently filed today. Maybe this sounds a little stoic, but I'm not a lawyer. Um, the court battle is not my fight, so it, it's going to be whatever it's going to be. But what I can do is try to channel my experiences and my reading over the past few years and try to help contextualize a lot of what's going on and how we got here. Let's start by making this clear. There are no super geniuses on either side. Trump is a talented and lucky man with tremendous instincts, but he's also deeply flawed. And the people opposing us, they are not brilliant supervillains. You know, they have made a crap ton of mistakes over the past few years. Look, the left got totally blindsided in 2016. They never conceived of the fact that Trump could win. You know, and they're smart people, but like I said, they're not super geniuses. Something smart people are very good at doing is fooling themselves and believing things that just simply are not true. A huge screw-up for them in 2016 was they believed the polling. Or more importantly, they did not contextualize the polling the way they needed to. The aggregate final national polls in 2016 like a point, point and a half off. Some of the state polls missed by like, you know, 7 to 10 to 11 points. It was a pretty dramatic miss at the state level polling. 
which matters because we don't use popular votes, we use the Electoral College. The Electoral College vote is the only one that matters. And, I mean, this is not a big secret. It's in the Constitution. That is the victory condition. And they completely ignored some major warning signs because, again, you know, smart people are very good at lying to themselves. Of course, you would think they would learn something from 2016, but the pollsters were even worse this year. The aggregate national polling at this point, I think, is something close to seven points off. And there were some tremendous state and local misses as well. Polling matters because it helps people allocate money for a campaign. And the DNC ended up wasting hundreds of millions of dollars in races, like trying to unseat Mitch McConnell, who won like by 10 or 11 points, and trying to spend more money trying to knock off Susan Collins in the Senate. I think she won like 21, 22. Like her, her polls were off by like 21 or 22 points, which is insane. If you got my Substack newsletter last week, you probably saw the part where I talked about the polls and I, I discussed the concept of shy Trump voters and how it meshed with the obvious Trump enthusiasm. You know, my theory was that there was essentially two different groups of people. The enthusiastic Trump supporters were a lot of very working class, white, and minority, you know, Trump supporters. And the shy Trump voters were like white, college-educated, uh, suburban people. And, you know, I, you know, theorized that if there was any shy Trump support, it would be in that group. Well, it turns out that, and this is pretty interesting, um, I'm going to share this in the next substack, but it turns out the polls were 30 points off for white college grads. 30 points. That's like throwing a dart at a dartboard. So I'm going to toot my horn there because, you know, my theory apparently panned out. So I'm going to pat myself on the back a little bit. So that's it. You know, the I freaking love science people ran their sciencey polls and, you know, they had 30 point errors, which again, you know, it's, it's a maximum of 100 points, which is, I mean, you could probably be more accurate if you just randomly guessed. So... Yeah, you know, we're not dealing with people that are supermen. We're dealing with dorks, and they cannot second-guess themselves. And the results of this was they may, they may, depending on how these lawsuits and these recounts go, they may have unseated Trump. They may, may. And they got blown out everywhere else. Again, all the down-ballot races, like, they got... You know, they were saying they thought they were going to pick up 10 or 15 seats in the House. They lost 10 or 15. They assumed, they pretty much guaranteed they were getting the Senate. Like, they may have, like, one or two seats in the Senate. You know, it's overwhelmingly strong chance we're going to, you know, retain the Senate. And, you know, we've got, right now, well, Roberts is kind of a swingy vote, but we have five solid conservative justices right now. And, you know, we, again... We're dominating the redistricting fight that basically belongs to us at this point. You know, yeah, I am, I'm pretty stoked overall. The massive polling error this year is probably due to two things, and both of those things are very interesting to me. The first part of it, the why it was so wrong, is their predictions are just wrong. It's like their understanding of human nature is false. The second thing, and this is really the more intriguing thing for me, 
because it, I think it's more promising. And I'm going to harp on this later on because you know we're going to be pushing this. The most intriguing part of the polling error for me is because when you get a 30-point error within one you know racial educational co cohort, that tells you those people are learning to lie. You know, it's not only are their models wrong, but that people are actively lying. You know, and this is culture jamming. This is something that we are going to harp on here, especially on this podcast. But people are learning the lesson. Lie to these people. Do not give them good data in anything. These people that consider themselves our masters and that want to rule us, try to rule our lives with data. Data they collect everywhere. So it's really rewarding and a warm feeling to see people start lying to them and to see these lies show up in the polls now. So, you know, lefties have this thing and they say, you may have heard them say, become ungovernable. Well, our job at this point is to become unquantifiable and unmeasurable. We learned a long time ago that black is not a good color for a good camouflage color for nighttime because it stands out. So going completely radio silent is not the way to do it. And we'll talk about some more tactics. I'm going to have another episode on culture jamming coming up. But instead of just like trying to go radio silent, which is not really practical, give them garbage data. You know, a, a contextual insurgent tries to hide in the static. Look, I don't want to lose Trump, okay? But he's not immoral, and there are term limits for president. The reality is, at most, we have four more years with Trump. And then we're right back here where we started. Even if we do lose Trump, you know, think about what they had to sacrifice to pull it off. There's a film called The Thing by John Carpenter. Um, the original is in 1982. Uh, there is a prequel from a couple years ago that also takes place in Antarctica. Um, but yeah, there's these researchers in Antarctica, and there are these alien imposters that pretend to be people, and it like absorbs them. And every once in a while, when it's threatened, you know, it tears off its clothes and like you know, big monster tentacles and stuff, and mouths and stuff fly out. And then when things are really, really tense, like all the other imposters like join together in this giant, big, super creature, Voltron-esque creature. That's basically what we saw happen. I mean. Our media, tech, corporate, um, industrial, state, national security industry combined together in this giant monster to try to attack Trump and attack the election. And they may, may, and I stress may, they may have, com you know, completed removing Trump or they, they may in the end be successful in removing Trump. It's still up in the air. But they lost everything else. They lost everything else. That's not strength. That's weakness. And and they've exposed themselves completely. I mean, the way the Hunter Biden story was suppressed, the way they just panicked. I mean, anyone who's paying attention know at this point knows what the score is. One of the reasons I started this whole podcast was the fact that we need to stop trying to expect someone else to do all of our fighting on our own. Um, you know, once Trump got elected, we basically everyone felt like they relaxed, you know, everyone back to their own lives. And I don't think that's very realistic. Um, 
in 2008, you know, right immediately after Obama got elected, he had a talk with a bunch of organizers and supporters. And he says, thank you for getting me, you know, elected to the office and congratulations on all your hard work paying off. Now make sure that I do what you want me to do. And that's really the, the, the thing. It's like Trump, you know, we cannot simply elect politicians and expect them to be champions on our behalf. We have to understand, we have to pressure them to do what we want to do. Like even politicians that align with us are at best what we can consider to be a passive ally or at what's also known as an amenable authority. You know, if you want them to reliably do what you want them to do, you have to continually pressure them to do what you're doing, what you want them to do. And that's something the left's fairly good at. Um, they have all their organizations they've built to pressure people. Like they have the direct political, um, you know, they, they have people they elect and then they actually pressure them directly. And they have other ways of doing that. And that's what we have to do. If Trump gets in for another four years, or even if he doesn't, Regardless, like I said in, the, in episode 7, you know what we have to do doesn't change. Our only thing that changes is our timeline. Either way, if Trump's in or not, we have to build the same things. We have to learn to start pressing for power on our own and build the organizations and structures to do that. And that's really the underlying point for this whole project is helping you learn how to do that. I think one big driver of like either depression or and negativity or like overwhelming optimism, unrealistic optimism, is people like doing time discounting where they'll you know something will happen and they will draw a vector out from there and assume it continues on forever and it doesn't work that way um i'm going to talk about uncertainty at this point you know people don't pro don't properly weigh it or consider it i mean it's hard to really be certain about uncertainty because that's what makes uncertainty uncertainty but you know people make a long-term projection off of something that's happened recently and they'll treat it like it's set in stone I mean, let me give you a good illustration here think of what the world looked like in april 2020 okay like everything that happened i mean the state of the world in april like with covid and everything that was going on now imagine you could go back in time to april 2015 and ask yourself in april 2015 like what do you project that the world will look like in April 2020 your prediction of what the world of April 2020 would look like in April 2015 would be hilariously wrong like it would be nowhere near close because you had no way of predicting the two biggest disruptive events of the past five years those two disruptive events were President Donald Trump and the coronavirus, you know, both combined and separately. You know, th there's no way, you, you would have had no clue at that point either one of those were coming, and your prediction would have been nowhere near close to what we had to deal with in April of 2020. They're called black swans for a reason. Those unknown unknowns. You know, you can't predict things that you don't know, and those are always a gigantic factor in history as both President Donald John Trump and the coronavirus have proven. If you've read my you know, viral interview in Reason when I was talking about going undercover in Portland Black Block, you may have heard me talk about someone named Francis Fukuyama and his work, End of History and The Last Man. Well, it's, it's a poorly understood and 
you mischaracterize work. But his thesis at the time was we had kind of reached this state of, you know, lower liberal democracy and free market capitalism was the end state of human organization and development. And there was probably not a chance of anything better coming along. And he caught a lot of flack for that. But the thing that people miss was, you know, he had a postscript in the book where he said, you know, people are not going to accept a boring, peaceful, comfortable life. They, that man always has the capability to restart history. There's always going to be people who have passion, who want to feel like they are fighting for something. And, you know, he has a quote where people want to, people want to battle, they want to struggle. And if everything's perfect, they'll fight against democracy. They'll fight, they'll fight against that perfect world. And I think that's really the thing we have to do is like, you know, there's history never ends. History is, is always continuing on. So those are a big thing you have to keep in mind. I don't care what it looks like on the ground or how hopeless it is or even how amazing it looks. You have to keep in mind there are always those unknown unknowns. There are future, not necessarily Donald Trump's or coronavirus out there, but there are future Donald Trump and coronavirus-sized black swans out there in the future. There are also a large number of people who will not accept a boring existence. They want to restart history. You remember in the Matrix film, you know, um, they said, the architect said that they created a Matrix that was perfect in Utopia and people refused to accept it and they had to give people a Matrix where they struggled and they fought. And that's, that's who we are as human beings. So it doesn't matter, you know, how hopeless or depressed or shitty things look right now. You have to keep that in mind. You have those giant black swans and people out there who want to change things, who have that desire to go out there and create and struggle and fight. And it's it's been that way for all of human existence, and it's not changing anytime soon. We're going to have an upcoming episode on this podcast talking about a lot of the differences between the way right-wingers and left-wingers like conceive of, access, and manipulate power and influence in society. You know, I'm very fortunate. I've had an interesting life. I've seen so many different perspectives. You know, I've spent a lot of time in right-wing spaces and a lot of time in left-wing spaces, and I have friends all the way across the spectrum, you know, friends and acquaintances, and there's some really fundamentally different ways that people think. I mean, um, you know, there's some psychologists that have touched on it, but I'm speaking purely from my personal, like my reading and learning and my personal experiences, you know, and I mentioned this in the Antifa episode, if you want to go back to episode two, you know, I talked about Antifa about controlling urban areas because urban areas have a lot of cultural and economic power. And that leads me into something called four networks theory. And I'm just going to touch on this really quickly. We'll have a much longer episode in the future. The, um... Lefties have a lot of, you know, control over cultural and economic levers of power. And righties in predominantly more rural areas, because of the way our government or republic is set up, the Constitution, rural areas have a disproportionate amount of political power. So righties access the electoral process and use government to exercise power and influence and drive things. You know, that's that's the right-leaning person's strength because of everything, you know, 
less economic and cultural, more government. And there's also guns too, which you know is is something that would be closer to the military model. Like the so four network theory says that there's four different avenues of power. There is the government, there is the economic, there is the military, and then there's the religion. I don't think religion so much is what it, that's not what the the category that I use in the modern western world because the religion has gotten a lot weaker. Maybe when you're talking about pre-Reformation Europe, when you had the Catholic Church was still very dominant. Today, I kind of personally mark out, you know, when I'm doing a four network theory analysis, I mark out religion and I put culture. And that is economic and cultural power is the power that lefties are used to wielding because they have more access to that. And right-wing people have military and government, like military and politics. That is what the right-wing person thinks of as how they access power. You know, our, our constitution set it up so, you know, the when you're rural areas, kind of are weighed a little bit heavier. Like it's interesting, you know, it's not explicitly made in the constitution, but you can see it when you when you look at four networks theory. It's a real good balance between all those four, you know, avenues of power. You know, the the left with their cultural and economic power is reduced power in terms of guns in the military and reduced power in politics and the right who is a little bit weaker economically and culturally because it's more of a rural type of politics versus an urban politics is a little little bit of a boost in government and like military at this point i'm sure you're probably thinking aaron it's like you know the government is like the bureaucratic states filled with leftists you know what are you saying the right has more political power well yeah, true. It's, it's there's a lot of leftists in the administrative state, bureaucrats, and everything. I'm just saying, as far as like representative strength, you know, you, you probably hear lefties complaining all the time about the electoral college, because you know, and also like the Senate, because senators. Why does a state, you know, like Wyoming or something, or with one of those states that has less than a million people, have two senators? When California's got forty something million people and two senators, they're always complaining because it's like. If you live in a blue state, there's, you know, per representative, you know, there's less representatives for urban blue areas than there are red rural areas. And that's what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm not saying, like, you know, it's intrinsically, you know, government is a conservative value. I'm simply saying that, you know, we are weighed. Like, the rural red areas tend to be weighed heavier in, under our system of government. And that's what I'm referring to. So I bring up the four networks theory. Like I said, we're going to have more on that in the future. But I wanted to touch on that really quick because I think it helps explain a lot of what we're seeing. This whole summer we saw a lot of people, um, a lot of lefties out there smashing stuff, um, tearing, you know, just, just two, we had like almost $2 billion in insurable damage. This is like the most destructive riots in American history. There's a lot of leftist infrastructure out there doing that. Some of that is like lefties, they have an understanding not only of force as a spectrum, like, you know, you don't want to go out there and kill someone. Like, you want to go intimidate them, push them, shove them around. Because they understand a dilemma action. You know, I had the contextual insurgency piece that I wrote for Center for Security Policy where I talked about the dilemma action Antifa was using in Portland against Portland police. There is a response where it's, called, it's also called a response dilemma. Like, your opponent doesn't have a proportionate response to the amount of force or the attack you're using against them. So they're either forced to back down and look weak and set the precedent that they will give way if you do this or they're forced to overreact and lose the propaganda war 
Um, and that's something lefties are very, very good at. Like they are spectrum thinkers. And because they have economic and cultural power, um, they also think about using economics and culture as a weapon. Um, Deplatforming, like, and a lot of the deep banking. Um, what they'll do is a lot of these these big businesses that have large market share will apply pressure to smaller companies that offer you know services or whatever. And that's that's how you get like a like a like a deplatforming cascade, or it's called a disconnection cascade. Like they will actually find a big person and have them like we're we're cutting off so and so, we're deplatforming this person or this group, and then that sets a precedent, and that starts a preference cascade, an operant, um, it's operant conditioning as well, but that starts a cascade amongst other connected networks, and that's how people like Laura Loomer, the Proud Boys, and everyone get basically deplatformed from everyone and debanked, cut off from banking. And that's how that happens, and that's how lefties deploy economic power. And, you know, because economic and cultural power is not a, a righty strength, we're very weak in that area. Um, and because, you know, we think, right-wing people think in terms of we're going to access power through the elect electoral process or we have the military, or this, which is also the Second Amendment, we can't really do that because that is like such a extremist position that you can't just jump straight to that. And the lefties are basically running a dilemma action against us. They are focusing mostly on economic and cultural power and then um, some amount of um, physical force, like Antifa doesn't actually try to kill people, they try to harass you and provoke you into overreacting. And that's what lefties are doing. You know, we've got two different groups of people that are in different areas with fundamentally different ways of accessing and deploying political power. So I'm going to wrap this podcast up with a quick anecdote i want to tell you a story to kind of help drive some points home about how things are never always as lost as you think and how you can really pull stuff out a small group of people can make a huge difference so talk about what happened to me in august 27th um, 2017 in berkeley california so in case you don't remember um that was we had had a bunch of clashes in berkeley in 2017 that was the battle of berkeley the milo all that stuff we went to portland there was a big thing in portland and August 12, 2017 was when they had that big shit show in Charlottesville, which, you know, Unite the Right, which I didn't go. I, I it was it was really there's so much behind the scenes that was insane. Like a, a bunch of people were saying this is a trap. Don't go to this. These people are going to screw up. And yeah, it ended up being like worse than we ever possibly imagined. But that happened. And the whole mood in the country, even though we had nothing to do with that, most of us like wanted nothing to do with it didn't go with it didn't go there like said those dudes are idiots we weren't connected to them at all that happened and it did, the left didn't care anyone that was like centrist to the right was a nazi in their eyes so there was actually going to be like a a, a a a rally in berkeley and one in california they one in san francisco the day before so yeah they they basically told the organizers for the one in San Francisco. I mean, SFPD told them, it was like, you're going to have to walk a mile to Chrissy Field through the streets. We're not going to escort you. There's no parking near here. And they were going to line the streets. There's an estimated about like 20, 20 to 30,000 people that are going to be lining the streets, extremely pissed off, tons of Antifa, and they were ready to attack everyone. Like, you're going to have to walk the whole way, like a mile through the town, because um, you're not going to be able to drive or park anywhere near there. And 
in case they rush the fence, we're not going to be able to stop them. And if anyone on your side gets hurt or killed or injured, we're going to charge the organizers. I was, it was insane. Like I was not one of the organizers for that, but I saw all the correspondence. It was like they were basically like, you know, they were telling everyone they were going to let them walk into a trap and get killed and charge anyone that survived. Um, so that got canceled, and it was it was insane. That day they were chasing everyone that was involved all over the city, and I was running around filming and live streaming. The next day was Berkeley, and that was a crap show. The organizer of that one was completely incompetent. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it was insane. And that night, a bunch of us in chat were talking, and there was about a dozen of us, and we're like, you know what, this is going to be a shit show, but let's go walk into Berkeley anyway. We're like, to hell with these people. You know what? Whatever. We're gonna let's go walk into Berkeley, and these people want to attack us. They can attack us. We're not gonna back down from them. You know, it's like we're we're none of us were Nazis. We're all a bunch of normal Trump supporters and conservatives and Republicans. And so we went to bed that night. I woke up the next morning and I wrote my will out because I didn't think I was going to survive. I just at that point I was like, fuck it, I don't care. I'm seeing this to the end. Wrote over there. Um, and, you know, I was really sick too. I had a, a cold, and I actually hurt my hip a few days before, and I could barely walk. So I'm kind of hobbling. I was, I could, couldn't run. I was like, I'm like dead. I'm so dead. So we go there, and yeah, you know, um, the we entered the the Martin Luther, Martin Luther King Park in Berkeley, and the cops are searching everyone, and they're making sure you can't even have anything to defend yourself. No helmets or anything. No mace. We're like, you know, we're just going to be bait. We're just baiting a trap at this point. Um, yeah, and then, then then Antifa comes around the corner. They had assembled at a park a few blocks away, and there was like 500 black block Antifa. And they come around the corner. They've got a big truck packed with shields and, and you know, clubs. And the cops see them, and the cops are in riot gear, and the cops turn and run. Like, the cops just run away from these people. And like 500 of these black block folks flood the park. And they start shoving us around. There's a bunch of like famous photos of me getting like pushed and attacked. And there's there's one of them that's a photo of me in the Reason article, the one that went viral. That was taken that day in Berkeley, and I was mobbed. I was, I, I'm kind of proud. That I was the last person physically thrown out of the park, and I just said, no, they're gonna pick me up and throw me out of the park, and that's exactly what they did. But um, yeah, <laughs> it was it was insane. Um, I mean, there's only like a dozen or so of us, you know. And there, there wasn't enough red meat for Antifa to beat up. So they got incredibly, they were whipped up in their frenzy. And they started attacking people. Like, it started attacking reporters. Um, they just started attacking every random people. And it was just, you know, everything was filmed. And the internet was flooded with all this imagery of anarchists beating the crap out of normal people. Beating the crap out of, like, completely lame, you know, mainstream, legitimate, credentialed reporters. Beating and robbing them. Um, and I left that day. I was like, you know, thankful. I was glad to be alive, but I left that day. I knew we had succeeded because, you know, just us walking into Berkeley and standing up for ourselves and standing up for our right and our free speech, just, just to go walk in the middle of a mainstream city in the United States without being attacked. Um, these people had flipped out and we were, we essentially made ourselves bait in the trap. And it, if you don't remember the mood in the country that time, it was like people were writing these hagiographs hedi about Antifa, and they do that now. But this was like, you know, Mitt Romney was cheering on Antifa at that point. It was insane. Like, all, all the cucks and everyone. Trump was getting pressured so hard. 
But then I left that day, and I knew they had fucked up, and I knew that we had been there and done the right thing. Um, and then the, the next, that afternoon, all these, like, starting that afternoon, that evening, all these headlines started coming out, like Fox News, like even in the Washington Post, it's like, was like, or let's see, like AP News, is like, anarchist rampage in Berkeley renews free speech debate. There's like the Washington Post headline, black-clad Antifa members attack peaceful right-wing protesters. I mean, it was just... Black-clad anarchist storm Berkeley rally. Anarchist rampage in Berkeley renews. For, I mean, it was just, just insane headlines. You know, anarchists injure all these people. It was the whole national conversation changed overnight, and a dozen of us did that. Like we literally forced the national narrative, the conversation that was happening, into a 180-degree direction in a direction that we wanted to go and it was a dozen of us and we're sitting in a chat and we're talking about this and said like, to hell with it let's go downtown and I had a feeling that was what was going to happen but I just want to end on that point because I want you to know that no matter how bad things are you know a very small group of people can change so much and can change the narrative so I hope you found that podcast useful it was a little bit more free-flowing there um, I'm going to in the future I'm actually going to do one on Rosa Parks. If you've ever heard me speak um, at some of my speeches, I bring up Rosa Parks and Claudette Colvin and the story of that because it's it's a very interesting story about infrastructure and you know it's it's courage is not enough you know courage combined with training and preparation so it brings you success. So I'm going to have a longer one on that. I'm also going to have another episode talking about four networks theory. But this is a pretty good free-flowing one. I think I touched on a lot of things I wanted to expand on from the last podcast. So yeah, anyway, I'm Aaron Smith. I am your host of the Contextual Insurgent Contextual Insurgent Project podcast. If you found this useful and helpful, I would love your support. You know, even if it's just a mocha frappuccino at Starbucks equivalent, my cash app is dollar sign E.E. Smith 4. That's the number 4. A Patreon is Patreon backslash E.E. Smith 4. Again, that's the number 4. Um, I'm going to be expanding to some different... I'll be adding Bitcoin and some other stuff. and We're going to be moving to YouTube and probably BitChute or DLive. So I've got some interesting things in the works. And I've got some other contributors we're going to be bringing on, touching on different topics. But I'm really excited for what's to come. And I hope you tune in and in the future. And I hope you subscribe to my Substack, the Contextual Insurgent Substack. That's a weekly newsletter. Um, anyway, have a great one, and I'll talk to you later.